Welcome to Cockpits and Cocktails, the lively aviation podcast where we talk about all things aviation and aerospace. So please grab a cocktail and let's chill out and talk about some aviation. Welcome everyone to Cockpits and Cocktails. We have a very special guest today. This is Dr. Micah Inslee. She's Government Relations Chair for the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society and an engineer former chief scientist of the United States Air Force. We're going to talk a little bit more about the subject of seating. How are you today, Ms. Ms. Inslee? <laughs> Hi, Cooper. Hi, Natalie. Happy to be here. Just call me Micah. Micah's great. Welcome, Micah. Thanks, Natalie. Okay, we'll start getting with the questions. So tell us a little bit more about what your position is uh, in this society? So I'm a human factors engineer and the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society is made up of psychologists and engineers across the United States who are involved in the design of systems to, to support human performance. Uh, human factors actually got its start in World War II when uh, they found that airplanes, perfectly good airplanes were running and they couldn't understand why. And after some research by some psychologists and engineers, they found that it was because nobody had really designed the, the cockpits, uh, the controls and displays to work the way that people worked. And this really started the whole field of ergonomics and human factors. And we have about 3,500 members in the United States and uh, there are thousands more worldwide uh, who look at how people work, either how they their dimensions, their cognitive performance, their physical uh, and mental characteristics, uh, perceptual characteristics. And we work on designing technology to work the way people work. And that's had a lot to do with increasing aviation safety over the last uh, century where the uh, accident rates have come down dramatically as we've looked at the real benefits both for performance and safety um, and, and effectiveness uh, when you design technology to fit people. It was a part of my uh, volunteer job with Human Factors and Ergonomics Society is we try to uh, do outreach to explain to people in the government and in industry just uh, what our profession does and the value it brings to designing systems to improve the performance of people who use them. That's pretty interesting. This is kind of a different, totally different subject matter for us we're usually talking to pilots that fly you know uh, commercially or GA and I don't I have to say I don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about uh, ergonomics and things like that in the airplane I guess I've just taken for granted that there are people behind the scenes that have worked on these things over the years to try to make things comfortable and most efficient for pilot's comfort and passenger comfort. So this is pretty interesting to, to be talking to you about this and getting a little more technical um, with some of these aspects. Tell us a little bit more about the commercial side versus general aviation side. Well, commercial um, aviation is really a very special field because as you know, um, You've all had thousands of hours of, of training and experience before you ever got to fly in the, in the cockpit. Uh, you're, you're really a very highly selected and highly trained group. When it comes to general aviation, um, there isn't as high of a filter there. Um, many people 
uh, may have a low number of hours. And we actually find that most of the aviation accidents that happen are in the general aircraft group. Uh, and most of those are, are with GA pilots who have less than 500 hours. So it's sort of like being a brand new driver. You've got enough training and experience to get your license, but you don't have all the training and or all the experience yet really that lets you be very good at it, um, to do it very smoothly and efficiently and, and, and to learn all those lessons that you have to learn in going from your, your early training to, to being much more experienced. Um, and aviation is a very unforgiving field. Um, when you make mistakes, they can be catastrophic. So a lot of what we try to do is to um, help people get through that experience uh, quicker. We try to see if there are training programs that will help to improve their situation awareness uh, through things like pre-flight pre uh, planning, for example, checklist training, things like that, that uh, many pilots uh, learn, but many pilots don't learn that, that we know can help improve performance even in those GA pilots. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk more recently about situational awareness and how, how much they've incorporated that into, you know, private pilot training. And that was one of the things that I had read about you, some, some of the reports that you've, I guess, done research on and, and written on situational awareness and decision making. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of some of your findings for either general aviation or like more commercial type aviation? What were some of the more fascinating things that you found out? Sure. Um, I started researching situational awareness back in the 80s. I was an engineer working at Northrop Aircraft on fighter cockpit design. And we heard a lot from pilots about how they needed to have situational awareness. We knew we needed to reduce workload, improve situational awareness. But it turns out that situation awareness was one of those things that nobody had defined. Uh, nobody knew really kind of what it was or, or how to go about improving it. And I was working on a pilot a program called Pilots Associate, which was where they were trying to bring AI into the cockpit. And one thing we know about automation, and, and AI is no exception, is that it puts people out of the loop. And um, I, I hypothesized this was a problem with situation awareness, and I uh, was, was simultaneously working on my PhD at USC and I needed a dissertation. So I decided to take, take that on and uh, actually did the early work to define it, to um, develop a model of how it works cognitively, what it is that people do to develop and maintain situation awareness so we could understand where it went wrong, uh, figured out how to measure it. And that's really formed the mainstay of, of a lot of the work I've done over the last 30 years is applying that not just in fighter cockpits, but also commercial aviation, general aviation, air traffic control systems, and then a lot of other domains that learned they also needed situation awareness, things like um, army operations, power plant operations, uh, healthcare, really anywhere where people have to gather and integrate and understand a lot of information in a very short period of time we find that people struggle with, with building situation awareness and maintaining it. A lot of what I've tried to do is to um, apply what we know about um, how it works cognitively to saying, well, how do, how do we redesign these cockpits? Right now, you have to look at 20 different places to gather the information you need to make a decision. And what I've done is, is develop an approach to saying, let's really redesign how we build these systems differently so that the information you need is all integrated it's presented in one place and it's uh, presented in such a way that the, the important things really pop out at you and you can get situation awareness at a glance. 
And a lot of that work has been applied in many of these kind of domains that we've talked about, where we found significant benefits to um, designing the systems right, to really looking carefully at how we do automation so that we're not putting people out of the loop. Um, those, are, those are really some of the main thrusts of what my research has been. Yeah, so it sounds like you've probably had a lot um, of research or time kind of with the glass cockpit. A lot of work has been done in glass cockpits, um, and a lot of it has been in looking at where, where some of the challenges are in that, in that arena. Um, we, I mentioned earlier that the accident rates come way down in commercial aviation, but we still have many um, automation accidents where people are out of the loop. They struggle to understand exactly what the, the automation is doing and what it's going to do and, and to be able to make those projections. Um, and some of the latest examples of, of that have been the, the crash of uh, two crashes, actually, of the 737 MAX 8 and then, of course, Air France 447 where both of those were, were examples of, of where the, the pilots really struggled to understand what the automation was doing. And a lot of the way in which those systems work is just not uh, intuitive. It's not transparent. Um, and that there's a lot that can be done to improve um, how transparent those displays are for helping people to understand what the, what the automation is doing. Interestingly enough, we're seeing a lot of the same problems now uh, migrate over into automobiles where we're looking at uh, automated vehicles and people having the exact same kinds of problems. And uh, we know that's going to be uh, a real challenge because the um, margins for error are so small. Uh, there's the, your, your seconds or fractions of seconds away from other vehicles when some of these problems happen. And that population is not nearly as selected and trained as say your commercial pilots. So yeah, it's a very it's a very active problem space. Yeah, I, I know. You know, I've, I've only recently started flying in, in jets that are a little more, um, you know, technologically advanced. And if there's something that goes wrong, and and things do go wrong, if it's not something you're faced with every day or every flight, then you and you really don't have much time to figure out. Okay, what's going on here? You know, you have all these checklists, and some of them. They really are really good at how quick it is to find information in the book and get you exactly where you need to go. But the problems are much more complex than in a GA aircraft. And, and, you know, I've just learned that just from my experience. If it's if it's not something you you are practicing these recurrent training and things like that, where you go over some of the things you don't face all the time, but it's hard to keep that fresh if you're not doing it all the time. It is. And we found that, that some of those automated systems have so many modes and most pilots may only use one or two modes on a regular basis. Uh, so when it gets into one of these other modes, it can act really strangely or it can get to a particular set of circumstances that you haven't seen and it can do the unexpected. And uh, that that's where that, that display transparency comes in. Um, if it's, if it's, a, a silent uh, partner, basically, you don't know what it's doing. That's the worst kind of, of automation to have. It needs to be um, letting you know in clear way what it's doing and what it's going to be doing next so that you can be proactive. And that's where um, I think there's a lot of uh, changes that can be made for the better. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, current project you have with seating. So um, I know you deal with seating and safety concerns. Tell us about, you know, as 
because I fly commercial as a passenger also, you know, is it safe, the number of seating that they have? Is that kind of what you're working on? And I know you talk also about the uh, widths and seat belts accommodating the population or passengers. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So what's happened is Congress directed the FAA to take a look at this question of the safety of the um, air, of the seating situation in, in commercial uh, jets. And, and what's happened is that since deregulation, the airlines have tried to get more and more seats into the space available because they're, they're in competition with each other. And so the, there's this continual shrinking of the seat and the, the rows sizes. And uh, a, a lot of passengers are, are fed up with it. Um, they, they feel very crammed in and uh, Congress really wanted to know, was it safe? So what the FAA took a look at was just the question of evacuation time. How does the narrow pitch and, and pitches the distance between uh, a one seat row of seats and the row in front of it, uh, what, what is that spacing? Uh, that's the pitch. They looked at pitch and they looked at uh, two widths of seats to see if that affected how quickly people could get out of the airplane. Now, this was an improved evacuation study. In the past, the FAA has typically used um, flight crew. So uh, pilots and uh, flight attendants have typically participated in these studies who are probably more fit than the average uh, public. And uh, certainly more well-trained. Um, and that has affected, I think, what the, what the evacuation times were. What the FAA did this time was they recruited people from the general population there in Oklahoma City. So they had a really wide range of sizes and shapes of people who, who participated in, in the studies. And they, they found out that um, they could evacuate and under the required time, the required time is 90 seconds, and they were able to generally evacuate in the 40 to 50 second range. So it was actually pretty good. Uh, but it needs to be pointed out that there were also limitations to what they looked at. Um, there, were no, there was nobody over 60. There were no children. So there's nobody under 18. Um, and there was there were nobody with with disabilities, so nobody who um, needed a walker or a cane, for example, were included in the population. Uh, so it was kind of a best case scenario in that respect. Um, but but they did show that the uh, seat dimensions weren't uh, causing people not to be able to evacuate on time, and and that I think was the good news of the study. The downside is that um, we think that evacuation time is really only one aspect of safety. Uh, and, and, you know, the good news is that there's been, um, you know, due, due, to, due to the safety of flying, uh, evacuations are extremely rare. Where we really need to focus, we think, is in the um, large numbers of miles that, that people fly in the actual seat. So there's over 2 million passengers per day uh, that fly on airlines. And you may be in that seat for over two hours, as long as five or six hours, if it's a cross-country flight. And so there's a significant effect also of being of sitting in a seat that's small and being crammed in next to others for an extended period of time. And those uh, types of injuries can range from minor things like, you know, getting a bruised knees from somebody slamming the seat back in front of you 
to um, your legs getting numb because a short person's feet can't reach the floor uh, or somebody's with long legs, their feet are out on the aisle and they get run over by beverage carts. You know, those are the kinds of minor injuries that happen that, that, that people are used to. There's also a lot more serious injuries though. Deep vein thrombosis is a significant one that people get from sitting in, in fixed locations for extended period of times. Um, you can get frozen shoulder from being crammed in and not being able to move uh, your, your shoulders. Uh, so there are some significant injuries that, that happen when uh, you cram people into seats that are too small. And we think a lot more needs to be done to take a look at that problem. You know, I have to go to the chiropractor every time. <laughs> yes. The lumbar support is terrible, yeah. um, you know, for lower backs. Oh my uh, God. They, whoever designed the seats did them exactly wrong because they're concave where you need them to yes. provide lower back support and they stick out and push your head forward. So uh, they're, they're not designed well from an ergonomic standpoint. <laughs> no, I'm always very stiff. My knees are always stiff when I, when I get out of the seats and um, it is hard when you're, you have to fly a lot. And there are people that do have to fly a lot that are passengers for work. I mean, if I had to do it and I, and I fly a lot, if I had to do it like every, you know, week spending at least 10 hours or something on a flight, I would be probably have a lot of eggs and pains because of my back, my neck. My, I mean, even with the little amount that I do compared to some of these other people, I'm usually aching and, and I really want to pay extra for the bigger seats, even though, you know, they're not that much more comfortable. You do have a little more space with the actual seat itself is not any more cushy or supportive in, in areas. So I just figure it's just one of those prices I have to pay to, to fly the airlines, I guess. But those four well, inches really make a difference. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do help a lot, definitely. They, they make a difference. And and even more than the legroom, there's a challenge with the width. Um, you know, people can't fit in these seats anymore. And that means they're expanding into the seats next to them. And that causes a lot of consternation uh, on full flights where yeah. uh, people essentially take up too much room and it's not the individual's fault. It really yeah. is the, the, the fault that the seats aren't designed to fit uh, the majority of people who fly in them. Uh, current seating dimensions uh, barely cover about 50% of the population, which means there's a large number of people who who have either uh, girth or shoulder breadth or leg length that that just isn't fitting in that space. And that has to go somewhere. So we think there's a real challenge there that that really needs to be addressed. Well, it probably affects. I mean, I know for me, I, I can get pretty crabby if I'm if I'm crammed in a spot for a long time. And if you're in the, the window seat and you want to, you know, it, just getting up to go to the bathroom is you just wait as long as you possibly can because it's so awkward to get out mentally it messes with with you too you know when you're just like oh you just get irritated the, the it's either too hot or too cold and you're crammed in there and um you know you're could be dealing with someone who's just right up next to you and it's just a, it's a it's a difficult spot to be in for a well, long period of time it is. They, they, you know, they've done studies with rats and they know that the more rats you put in a cage, the more they're going to fight. Yeah. And <laughs> what we've really done is we've just crammed more people into a tighter space in these metal cylinders and you're seeing um, dramatic increases in air rage. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of factors behind that, but the um, condensing of people in small spaces certainly contributes to that problem. Yeah, I believe that. And, and it's almost like unfair, too, because I understand the airlines, you know, it's kind of a bonus if you want to pay extra to get these bigger seats. But it's at the same time, it's like, well, not everyone can pay extra to get a bigger seat. So they're just supposed to be uncomfortable and suffer and, you know, just crammed in there because they can't afford this luxurious, you know, seat that's that's an upgrade. It doesn't well, seem fair. Gosh, it's not an upgrade. It's 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 the basic for what fits the human body. I, I think the challenge here is that people don't know when they buy an airline seat that it's not going to fit them. They they there's so much variety in what seat sizes are, even even within an airline, uh, in terms of what plane you get on, what what the seating dimensions are going to be, and it's it's really kind of a gamble to know which which model you're going to have on any given day. So people don't really know, I think, what those trade-offs are. And the and then the airlines are, you know, they're all in competition with each other. They're trying to make a profit. Right. And so if you they can price their ticket five dollars less than the other guy, then people will buy their ticket. And that's just created sort of a, a march to the bottom. Um, you know, everybody keeps cutting and cutting and cutting. And at some point we have to say, Shouldn't there be a reasonable standard that when you buy an airline seat, it should fit the majority of the population uh, that needs to sit in that seat? And to me, that seems like a reasonable um, position. Yeah, I agree. So what do you do with this study now at at this point? What is your like, how do you move forward? What is your goal? What do you present it? And What's happened is this was a study that the FAA did in response to Congress and the FAA posted it online and they requested comments um, on the study that they did and their position, uh, which was, was fairly minimal in terms of saying, well, if they can get out in 90 seconds, then we don't, there's not, they're not going to do anything else, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the public has gotten... Um, quite exercised about this, as you might imagine, because, you know, people are, are kind of sick and tired of the problem. And so the FAA has gotten thousands and thousands of comments uh, on the study. And uh, almost all of them are basically saying these sits, seats don't fit us. Uh, we really need to do something different. So I think the next step is really going to be um, people contacting their congressperson and saying, uh, we think this is a problem and we want Congress to do something about it. Because I think until that happens, the airlines really aren't going to change their position. I have a question. Is is there a maximum number of seating? Or I know each aircraft is different, but do they have kind of a guideline where they say, okay, for this aircraft, you can only have this many seats for this other aircraft? Do they have that? Well, what happens is when uh, Boeing or Airbus or whoever builds, builds the airplane, they do a lot of customization for each individual airline. So the airline actually goes in and says, we want this kind of seating and this kind of uh, row pitch and so forth. So the, the airlines have a lot of say over what gets put in there. But right now, there's really no standards as to how, much, how, ma- how many seats they can cram in there as long as they can meet certain requirements for things like evacuation time. Well, we're, we are now running out of time, but let's all pretend we are in first class and we're... <laughs> We're about to get our drinks. What would be your favorite cocktail? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd have to go for a margarita. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would probably say, well, in the wintertime, I would be, it's, I don't know why, but I, I, I'd lean towards something like a dirty martini. It seems like heavier or something to me. Salt, the saltiness or something. It's more of a winter drink for me. But in the summer, hmm, maybe a gin and tonic. All right. So we're all relaxed in our first class seat, reclined. We have plenty of room. <laughs> Thank goodness. I, yeah. I'll take a Jack and Coke so I can go right to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate your your work on this uh, subject. I mean, all the subjects with the seating. I hope that, you know, there can be some changes. I think that'd be wonderful to, to be comfortable when you're flying across the country. And um, I think I would definitely arrive in a better mood if I wasn't crammed in. It is nice to hear that um, as far as safety wise, because I, you know, I have seven kids, so I always wonder how am I going to get out of here with, with all of them? So that's, that was a very interesting subject for me personally. Well, safety is important. We all fly with our families. One thing I always do is make sure to count the number of rows to the uh, exit row so that in the case of, of fire and smoke, when you can't see, you know just which row to get to to get to the exit. Every time. Absolutely. That is a wonderful tip. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on Cockpits and Cocktails on this episode. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Cooper and Natalie. Nice talking with you all. It was nice talking to you as well. Enjoy the rest of your evening. You too.